0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can get verses 1 through 8. You can find that in the Blue Pew Bible underneath the seat in front of you or in the sermon booklets. Hopefully you're following along with us. Here, as we begin this passage, Paul, now in the book of 1 Thessalonians, is beginning to address the issues that are going on in this congregation and the issues that have been reported to him. So follow along with me as I read. As Paul begins to address the issues there and as he seeks to encourage this church, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit to us this morning to change our hearts and our minds, that we would live for you more and more, and increasingly in your grace. It's in your name we pray. pray, Amen. Well, let's get your way right away. Think with me for a minute, a couple minutes here about the fast food industry in America. In the 1960s, there were in 1960 there were 200 McDonald's restaurants in the United States. I'm loving it. And in 2012, there were over 31,000 McDonald's restaurants in the United States alone. In fact, in 2012 there were close to 250,000 fast food restaurants in the US. And on any given day, one in four Americans eats one of their meals at a fast food restaurant. And the fast food industry in the U.S. is the symbol, has become a symbol of speed, efficiency, of convenience, and of your way right away, right now. And our spiritual journeys could not be more opposite than this experience. Is that our spiritual journeys are not speedy, rarely are they efficient. They most often are not convenient, and it's rarely what we want at the time when we want it. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica to encourage those who have made a commitment to Jesus, and I know not all of us here have, but to encourage those who are living the Christian life, to encourage them to press on in the path that they are currently living on. As we go into this passage here today, we're going to look at three different motivations that Paul gives to Christians to press on living the Christian life. And then one area of application that he applies these things in here this morning. So motivations for the Christian life, Paul begins by encouraging the church here that we are to live in order to please God. Verses 1 through 2 of this chapter, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, And to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says, he says, we urge you to walk and to please God, and to please God more and more. And then while he was there, he gave them instructions how they were to please God. If you wanted to please God, here is how you do so. The word here for instructions is a military order. It's the same word that's used to... As um civil orders from courts that are being given. And Paul is saying, I'm urging you to please God, and I've given you instructions how to do so. In fact, throughout Paul's life, Paul himself, earlier in, the, in this book of Thessalonians, described how he himself lives his life to please God. He said, For our appeal, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That that was the driving motive of his life, to please God. And indeed, in Paul's later letters, pleasing God is both his ambition, not only for himself, but also for his friends and for the churches to which he writes. Yet, this idea of pleasing God, there is many, oftentimes, a lot of confusion about this, particularly as it interfaces with our theology. Or with our experiences. For some people, for some Christians who grew up in a perfectionistic home, who had a perfectionistic upbringing, upbringing, the idea of pleasing God is that God will only minimally, and if minimally, then barely satisfied by your very best effort. And so you need to live your life, and you need to work to please God, and maybe, just maybe, if you, if you try your best and you try your hardest, maybe God will barely be satisfied by the very best effort that you have. Still, there are others who are concerned about a salvation-by-works theology that says that we that we are saved by our works or that we contribute to our salvation. And so those who are concerned about this articulate these things and say, there is nothing that we ever do that is pleasing to God. It is never pleasing to God. It is always tainted by sin, every aspect of it. Nothing that you do can please God. And yet, there's still other Christians who see other passages of Scripture, and they, they feel that if they, they need to please God, why? Because if I live my life to please God, and if I do please God, that, that God will love me more, that, that God will reward me. If he doesn't reward me in this life, he will reward me in the next life. And so I need to please God in order to get the reward. But living to please God, none of these senses that I just described are what Paul has in mind. But the truth is... But but there is this reality that living to please God challenges the reality of our profession of faith. It challenges our belief in Jesus Christ. That is, how can we claim to know God, to love God? How can we claim to believe in God if we do not live and seek to please him? And so it calls us to examine ourselves, who do you live to please? And really there's only three options to it. You're either living to please somebody else, usually someone else's approval that you want to get. You're living to please yourself, or you're living to please God. Those are really the only options. And in fact, you could interchange the word pleasing God with worshiping. Who do you live to please? Who do you worship? You either worship somebody else, or you worship yourself, or you worship God. Who do you live to please? Yet this idea of pleasing God, I... I, you know, I am aware of the challenges that this phrase is bringing for many people. And I, I don't really know how else to state it or how to state it differently, but if you have not experienced the grace of God, this phrase causes problems for you. And I'm saying this to people who've been Christians and people who have been in church all their life and maybe for most of their adult life. And people who, people who have been Christians who've gone on mission trips and done things, if you have not experienced the grace of God... This phrase causes problems, because the idea of pleasing God is interpreted, yes, I need to live to please God. Why? Because it's my duty. I, it, I'm, I'm under obligation to do this. I, I need to live to please God because I'm afraid what will happen in my life if I don't. I'm a, there's a fear in my life of disobeying God, and I've got guilt in my life, and there are fears in my life, and I walk under a perpetual sense that God is angry with me. That that is the functional feeling that I live day in, day, day in life, day in and day out. That when God looks down on me, that he is disappointed with me and he is angry with me. And so I need to live to please God in order that God, that, that wouldn't happen. That maybe, just maybe, God would possibly be satisfied with me. And if you have never had the experience, of a, a real experience of God's grace in your life, that's what this sounds like. But for those who do know the grace of God and have experienced the grace of God, The idea of living to please God is a deep and profound joy. I don't know how else to put it. Like, if you have had that experience, it is a deep and profound joy. It is the delighted pursuit of your life. It is something you say, what do I most long for in my life is that my soul yearns that I would live to please God. That it is something that becomes increasingly instinctive in my life that what I most want is to please him. Not because that's what I'm supposed to say, but because that is what my heart longs for. And that is what the Apostle Paul is getting at, a deep-seated joy that springs, that motivates this desire to live to please God. And this this heartfelt joy in order to please God is something, it's an approach to life that, that 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 frees us from the rigidities of Christian Pharisaism that would reduce Christianity into a moral list of do's and don'ts. But it is a freedom that brings, that says, how do I live my life to honor and please my heavenly Father, who I, who I just so delight to honor with my life and to please? And it becomes a very practical guideline for decisions in our life. Does this decision, does this choice that I'm faced with, does this please God or not? And it's a, it's a question that gives great joy to ask. And Paul is saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the grace of God and that you would live your life to please God, and that that would be the deep-seated joy of your life, that you would be live and motivated to honor him, that you would live to please God. That was the picture that described fear and living to please God. <laughs> Next, <laughs> living in holiness. First, live to please God. Secondly, live in, holy- <clears throat> live in holiness. Paul uses this word three times in this passage. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Actually, it's the word, your holiness. This is the will of God, your holiness. Same word. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but he has called us in holiness. Three times he mentions it as a driving factor as to why we should live and press on in the Christian life. For everyone who is a parent, for everyone who is a teacher, for every person who is a coach, one of the, their great yearnings and longings is for their children, their students, their the players that are on their team that they are coaching. A great longing of a parent, of a coach, a teacher, is to see those in whom they are investing in become all that they were made to be. To reach their fullest potential. That they would indeed uh, achieve You know, that that the athlete would would achieve all that this athlete could achieve. That a parent investing in their kids would see their child flourish. And the Bible has a word to describe this idea of what God wants for us in our life. Our flourishing, being all that we were made to be, all that we can be. And the word that the Bible uses to describe that is holiness. It is holiness. That God is at work in us. That we would truly reflect his image, that we would be remade in the image of Jesus Christ, that we would be all that God has made us to be. But part of our challenge in understanding the idea of holiness is that holiness, as Christians described it, it is often understood as a negative quality. It's understood as the absence of moral fault. It is understood as being without sin. It's defined negatively. Here's the challenge of what happens if we, if we define something negatively. Imagine that you had a friend, you know, a neighbor or a coworker who came from another country, and it's the fall, your school's started up, it's midway through the fall, and you started to develop a relationship with these people from another country, and they come to you and they say, you know, we would like to experience a, a truly American meal. We would like a truly American meal. Could you help us do that? And you say, sure. um, You know what? We'll invite you to Thanksgiving. Why don't you come to Thanksgiving? It is something that is uniquely American. And so in describing Thanksgiving, you describe it all negatively. Okay, well, that's great. We'd love to come to Thanksgiving. Well, what's Thanksgiving like? Is it a special day? Well, it's not like any of our other days. Oh, okay. Well, Well, do you guys have food at Thanksgiving? Well, what's that food like? Well, it, it's, it doesn't taste like dried-out cardboard. You know, the, the food, it's not, it's not over-salted. Oh, okay. Okay, well, do you have, do you guys eat desserts at Thanksgiving? I mean, I like desserts. Do you guys eat desserts? Well, 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 the desserts we have, we don't serve on any other day. Well, do you guys sit down or stand up? I mean, Is this a seated thing? Well, the chairs we have aren't broken. How how much of a sense would someone get about what thanksgiving is if it's always described negatively? Not much, right? So, too, when we describe holiness, it is, it is described negatively. It is the absence of sin. It is the absence of moral fault. It is the absence of corruption. And you say, well, do you want to be holy? Does that drive you to be holy? And you're like... Well, yeah, I mean, I don't like eating cardboard. Yeah, I guess I want to participate in this. Yeah, I, I, I think I want, want to be holy. But if you describe Thanksgiving... I saying, yeah, come to Thanksgiving. It's a special day. It's a uniquely American holiday. There is, there's lots of foods, and we have these family recipes that are passed down from generation to generation. You know, One of my things about Thanksgiving Day is waking up in the morning, you know, and very soon, you know, you know, halfway through the morning, you can smell the turkey roasting in the oven, and you can see it bubbling and simmering over the course of the day as it starts to change to this nice golden brown color, and there's gravy, and people bring all kinds of foods, and you never intend to eat, eat so much. You're like, I'm not going to eat too much this year but it's so good and there's so many different things to eat and so many different flavors that everyone eats too much and falls asleep on the couch and then they wake up and then there are desserts and all kinds of desserts and there's coffee and there's you know pumpkin pie and apple pie and all kinds of delicious things would you like to be a part of that absolutely absolutely well so too so too it comes with the issue of holiness when we define it negatively Consider this, in, and actually in the song that Bobby just sang a few minutes ago. You know, there's a picture in scripture of many places that the angels surround the throne of God and they say, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah Revelation describe this. The day and night the angels are around the throne describing God. So they say, Holy, holy, holy. Well, what are the angels saying about that? Well, they're describing something positive, not simply negative. They're not going, this guy, he doesn't sin. He, he's not corrupt. He's not crazy. That's not what they're saying. I mean, is that true? Yes, that's true. But the point of what they're saying is saying, this is this is God. He is perfect. There is no aspect of him that, that can be improved. He is supreme and glorious and radiant in every aspect of who he is and everything that he ever does. Everything that you know about him and see of him, you just stand in awe and wonder because he is Holy. And so day and night they are positively describing God as being, a, as, and all they can say is holy, holy, holy before him. And so the biblical picture here is saying God is growing you more and more in holiness, that you would live in holiness, that Jesus is the most amazing, most purposeful, most loving and compassionate, the, the wisest person who ever lived. He is Holy. And what Scripture says is that God's Spirit is at work in you, that you not only would live in holiness, but that you would become holy, and that you would be all who God made you to be, that there would be flourishing in your your soul, that there would be a deep soul satisfaction, that you would wake each day knowing why you are here, what you are to do, how to do it, and that you are empowered to do it. And yes, through that, that you would become more and more like Jesus Christ, and yes, at the same time, of course there's going to be less sin, of course there's going to be less fault, of course there's going to be less corruption. But there is holiness that is developing in your life. And as NT Wright put. It, he said, holiness is the shining reflection that appears in human character when we learn and practice what it means to be in God's, what it means to be in God's image. When we live in holiness, the way that we are designed to live, the way that life works, where there is peace, where there is a conscience that is at rest, where you are increasingly becoming who God made you and is working in you to be, where you are increasingly becoming holy. And Paul says, listen, brothers and sisters, live in holiness and don't compromise that. So live to please God. Secondly, live in holiness Thirdly, live knowing God. Here Paul gives these, again, some very specific instructions that we'll get to in a minute, but he says this: Notice the motive driving reason here: For this is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. The other weight of his argument. He's saying, why? Do the Gentiles act in the passion of lust? Why do they do that? Because they do not know God. Why do non-Christians act like non-Christians? Why do those who don't know God act like those who don't know God? The reason is that they don't know God. Therefore, what does that mean for you? It means that those of you who do know God is that you need to live your life knowing God. You don't act like those who don't know God because you do know God. You don't act like a non-Christian who doesn't know God because you do know God, that our lives, our conduct should be different because of our knowledge of God, that our lives are flowing out of our knowledge and our relationship with the living and true God. And how do you know God? Well, as Jesus prayed, he said this. He said, and this is eternal life, that they, the world, would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That eternal life is knowing God, being in a personal relationship with him that comes through Jesus Christ. And what happens is that as we know God and as we grow in that relationship with God, the affection, the love, the knowledge, the relationship, the affection within our relationship with God drives out all other competing affections. Indeed, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor in the 18th century, He talks about how our misplaced affections, lust, desires, sinful affections that we have, he said, our misplaced affections need to be replaced with the far greater power of the affection of God's love. He goes on to write in this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. A great title. The Expulsive Power of a New New Affection. That the love of God, God's love for you, your love for God, expels competing affections and desires out of your life. And so in this sermon on the expulsive power of a new affection, he writes, he said, tell someone to stop sinning, and at best, they may do so reluctantly and partially. But give them a vision of knowing God and his glory, and they'll gladly root out all that gets in their way of their relationship with God. And that is what the Apostle Paul is arguing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, listen, you know God. You know his love, his grace, not just his abstract concepts, but as a person who has been engaged in a relationship with you. Live as one. Live as one who lives a life that reflects someone that knows God. May that drive your life and drive your motivation that Christians, as Christians, we must must behave completely differently. Why? Because we do know God. Because we want to live in holiness. Because we want to live to please him. Three driving motivations. Now, with those three motivations, Paul then seeks to begin to apply those things to three areas of Christian discipleships that he feels that this brand new church needs to know. And the three areas that he applies it for new converts, he says, You need to apply this with specific instructions in the area of your sexual conduct, and the way that you work, and how you deal with death. In the upcoming weeks, we'll be dealing with work, and then subsequently we'll be dealing with death. But here in this passage, he's addressing sexual conduct. And he says this. He says, you know, live holy, live pleasing God, live because you know God. What is his specific instructions for how to do that? How do you you live to please God? How do you live in holiness? How do you live to know God in this area of our sexual conduct? He begins, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality which includes every kind of sexual conduct outside of that between a husband and wife. We live in an age where there is a moral free-for-all, where people are proactively pushing and indeed some trying to legislate that you must be allowed, people must be allowed to express whatever desires happen to arise within them or whatever desires happen to be aroused in them by somebody else. And Paul is saying, no, this needs to be brought into strict submission to abstain from sexual immorality because of who God is, because you're living to please him, because you know God, because of a quest to live in holiness. Now, within that particular word for singles, I'd encourage you to look at the community group guide this week as John Stott applies this passage particularly to those who aren't married. And um, there's some resources there for you in the community group guide. So I encourage you to look at that. So his first exhortation for instructions in this is to abstain from sexual immorality. His second set of instructions is to have self-control within marriage. Verses 3 through 5, he says that each each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now this phrase here, to control his own body, if you look at your Bible, it probably says at the bottom, an alternate translation is, or take a wife for himself. The reality is, is that there's problems with both translations. It's the same phrase. There's problems with translating it either way, with both of them. It's a, it's a Greek uh, colloquialism that we don't get an exact—we um, can't communicate well in English. And so it is either control his own body or take a wife for himself. But again, both of those translations are problematic. I think the weight of it actually lends towards—even with its problems—lends towards Paul saying abstain from sexual immorality— That each one of you now take a wife for himself. Now, I want you to notice with this how dignifying Paul is being to women. Because in a day and age when it was completely appropriate for a man who could have a mistress for his intellectual needs and social companionship, who with the prevalent institution of slavery, no one would have batted an eyelash if he had one or more concubines, and if his interests weren't satisfied there, There was always the casual opportunity between harlots and the temple cults. And the reason why someone had a wife was to manage the household and be the bearer of his legitimate children. And what Paul is saying is, no, don't engage in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God, but rather control his own passions, control his own bodies. Each of you take a wife for himself. And then he describes what that means, that you conduct yourself in holiness and in honor not in the passion of lust not in the passion of lust like the gentiles that is that the lust that goes looking for new partners Paul is saying that's what everyone else is doing but it must be brought into strict strict submission and he's also saying that your conduct in marriage needs to be in holiness and in honor that marriage is not a form of legalized lust that the fact remains that it's possible for people and possible to wrong and take advantage of one another inside of marriage. And John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, writes, he says, "...the fact is there is a world of difference between lust and love, between dishonorable sexual practices which use the partner and true lovemaking which honors the partner, between selfish desire to possess and unselfish desire to love, to cherish, and to respect." It's identifying that God hates every form of exploitation, whether outside of marriage, and he hates every form of exploitation that incurs inside of marriage. That your sexual conduct should be one in holiness and in honor. So, his instructions are to abstain from sexual immorality, self-control within marriage. He also goes on to say, don't cheat one another. Verse 6, do so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What is his, what is, what, how would someone transgress and wrong his brother in this matter? Well, this matter is sexual conduct. And he's saying, don't transgress and wrong your brother in this. He's saying, don't cheat on your spouse with somebody else, which is a delicate way of addressing the issue of effectively stealing someone else's spouse. And then he adds on to it, so this whole issue is bound um, by, these are instructions from God, and they're backed by the judgment of the Lord. Verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's point is he's saying these instructions, which are very practical instructions... Given to you so that you would live to please God, so that you would live in holiness, that you would live knowing God. These practical instructions are yes, they are backed by the judgment of God. They're not for me, and if you disregard them, you're not disregarding me, but you're disregarding God, who not only gives you these instructions but who has put His Holy Spirit inside of you to move you, to motivate you, and to empower you. Now, what do these instructions here have to do with the motivations earlier identified? How does this all tie together? Paul is teaching us. He says, listen, be motivated to live because you know God. You know his grace. You know his forgiveness. You know his love. You know that he is the God who restores you, the one who satisfies your deepest longing, not as abstract concepts, but he does so because you know him as a person that God loves you, that, he is, that you are delighted in by God. Don't forget that you know God. So don't be seeking these things out. Don't be seeking love out in all the wrong places. Live because you know God. Live in the knowledge of God. Not only that, God is making you positively holy. He is making you to be all you who you were made to be. He is making you holy that you would be, the, the, you would be shining. The shining, radiating that you would reflect the glory of God, that you would be all who he has made you to be. Don't settle for these things that compromise that. Don't settle for these things that corrupt who God is making you to be. And not only that, but live your life not only in knowledge of God and live your life in holiness, but live your life to please God more and more. Live him to please him more and more as the deep-seated joy of your life, because what else do you want to do? Who else do you want to live for? Who else do you want to please, live to please God? And through all of this, Paul, in a very specific way, in a very specific area of our lives, is calling for us, for our faith to be manifested in our lives, for us to be motivated by the grace of God, that we live our lives pleasing God in holiness and, in holiness, knowing him that our life would be lived not only in the grace of God, but that our life would be lived by the grace of God. So that his knowledge of him and his holiness and pleasing him would be, inc- would be manifested in our life more and more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you that you do not come to us and say, you know what, if you measure up, then I might care about you. But you say, because I care about you, I'm interested in your growth. I'm interested in you becoming holy. Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us enough to to pursue after and even require our holiness so that we would be all that you have made us to be and and are working us to be. Lord, thank you that you are not an abstract God nor a set of propositions, but you are a, a personal God who comes to personally know us. And Father, for those here who do not know you, Lord, would you draw them to yourself today? Father, I pray for those here who have not experienced your grace, and the idea of pleasing you seems like an unbearable burden. Father, would the experience of your grace set them free that they would live in the delighted joy of having you as their heavenly Father, that pleasing you would be their deep-seated, heartfelt joy of their life. Father, would you be at work in us and move us, that we would press on in this life until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.